Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for most of these programs. Thank you for joining us today. And if you are joining us for the first time, Commonwealth Club is a 118-year-old nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any opinions expressed are those of the speakers. Now, the Commonwealth Club produces about 500 programs a year, even during the pandemic. So head over to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for all upcoming programs, plus podcasts and video of past events, plus a special invitation, as you saw in our introduction there. Join us this Friday evening for a special free program that's our annual gala and learn more about the club, our mission, and uh, even get a special message from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, today's program is the third of three programs presented with Gappa Theater. This program is presented in partnership with The Connection at San Francisco Community Health Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to all of you for joining us this afternoon for our third and final installment of Hearts and Minds a queer trans API community conversation series in partnership with Gapa Theater. And tonight, or I should say today, I'm sorry, I'm on the other side of the country today. Um, we are focused on the personal and the political journey of our leaders. Our speakers include James Coleman, who's a member of the South San Francisco City Council, Dr. Valley Kale Kanua, who is a teaching professor and assistant dean for diversity equity, and inclusion at the University of Washington, Sammy Ablazo-Wills, who's a community organizer and the outgoing executive director for API Equality Northern California, and Willie Wilkinson, who's a writer, a public health consultant, cultural competency trainer, and author of Born on the Edge of Race and Gender, a voice for cultural competency. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this very important conversation. Let's start with getting to know each and every one of you, um, you know, all the great, important work that you do. It's always great to hear that uh, the beginning of the journey, you know, your why and how it happened. How did you get into the work that you do or, you know, what inspired you to do something? Let's start with Lily. Oh, you picked on me first. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. It's such an honor to be part of this conversation. Um, well, um, as one of the older persons on the panel, I mean, for me, it started a long time ago um, in the early 80s um, as a student in UC Santa Cruz. Um, I really wanted to find people who might share my experiences, who might um um, understand <laughs> some of the challenges I was experiencing culturally, the pressures I was experiencing to be a good Chinese girl. Um, I'm a trans man, um, and I was assigned female at birth, and I had a lot of pressures on, on me. And so I um, was was searching uh, for that um, at UC Santa Cruz. Um, when I came out as a lesbian, um, you know, coming out as trans wasn't really an option for me, though I did change my name to Willie at age nine. It wasn't an option in the early 80s. It wasn't really a community. I found the lesbian community, but first I needed to come out as a woman because uh, I didn't really identify that way. But I found great empowerment in coming out as a woman, understanding feminism um, and, and putting a feminist lens on my experience and my mother's experience. Um, and um, 
really wanting to find connection. Um, there was only white lesbians. I met one black lesbian and I, you know, it was such a great connection. And then I, I, there was an international women's day event in 1983. And I met this, um, woman, an Asian woman with, of course, the mullet of the 80s, the dykes were wearing, <laughs> you know, um, what was it? Um, business in the front, party in the <laughs> party in the back, right? <laughs> so anyway, I was like, excuse me, are you an Asian dyke? And she was like, you know, um, selling women's music. Um, and I knew this one other Asian dyke. And I said, hey, and I introduced them. And I said, now we are three. And that was, you know, the first group that I knew of that I was part of. And, and so it was really kind of exciting to just meet people who were Asian lesbians. And I started organizing Asian lesbians on the West Coast and the East Coast and around the country. Um, and so that was kind of where it all started. But I, I ran um, or I was co-editing Phoenix Rising, which was the Asian Pacific Islander newsletter of the Bay Area at the time at 1987. And at that time, we were transforming it from what was a typewritten uh, newsletter that was kind of more focused on gossip to a more politicized, computerized newsletter, which was really challenging navigating one of the first desktop publishing programs. And we finally got it out. It looked gorgeous. We were running around the March on Washington for Lesbian Gay Rights. Because remember, LGBT didn't really come a thing until like mid to late 90s. But it was for lesbian gay rights in 1987. And we ran around and gave this newsletter to every Asian woman we could find. We made connections with folks all over the country. And it was really powerful. And what was really exciting in terms of visibility was the next day, NPR said there was everybody there at the March on Washington, even Asian lesbians. What? You know, and I was like, oh, my God, in 1987, that kind of visibility was so exciting. So um, that was kind of where it began for me. I, I, I really um, enjoyed, you know, meeting badass Asian dykes from all over the country. And in New York City, I uh, connected with Asian lesbians of the East Coast who had just started organizing in 1984. Um, and in Boston, I started um, Asian lesbians in New England. Um, and we, I started organizing there and I wrote a, a piece called Asian lesbianism as a, Asian lesbianism as a political identity in 1984, um, in Sojourner, which was the women's newspaper that was pretty, um, popular at the time. And, uh, so that was a, a way to connect with folks as well. So, um, that's kind of where it started for me. Can't wait to hear more of all of that work. Thank you. Uh, Sammy. Thanks so much, Michelle. And hi, everyone. Yeah, it's such a joy to be here with you all. Uh, it's so hard to think about where my journey started, because it feels like I'm always discovering that parts of my childhood were political, even if I didn't conceptualize them in that way at the time. Some of my earliest memories are memories of being called really sensitive, by the family and community around me. You know, we would, uh, I grew up in LA, I grew up in a, a pretty low income immigrant area. And uh, just in walking down the street, you know, seeing, seeing my community members, seeing people struggling, uh, I would cry. I would just like cry open on these streets. And uh, my mom would always be like, you cannot do that. Like you have to toughen up. You can't be so sensitive. And I think back to that now, you know, many years later, and realize that the reason why I was crying is because I, I knew, even before I could articulate it, that injustice was everywhere around me, and there was no logical reason that it had to exist. There was no uh, 
concrete thing that said some people should suffer while others hoard and hoard and take for their own. And so uh, growing up in a low-income community, first in Los Angeles and then in Vegas, I really felt the impacts of coming from an immigrant family, growing up very hustling class, uh, and having very little outlet to express myself, explore my gender, and explore my sexuality. And a defining moment, I think, came in high school, uh, fighting budget cuts with fellow students when they threatened to cut a lot of the basic programs that they had for students who, for many of us, didn't have anything else to do uh, because of the situation and the circumstance that we were in. And uh, I was really, really fortunate, I think, at that time to connect with other students who wanted to change something. And even though we didn't call it organizing at that time, you know, we rallied, we went to the governor's house, we tried to get media attention to say, this place has to invest in our future, has to invest in our education. Uh, And eventually the budget cuts didn't look quite as they planned. You know, we kind of won in some ways. And that was the first moment I think I really understood that people power was possible. And that launched me into a whole community of people who challenged me to not just think about experiences like the one that I had in high school, but that had me reflect on what it meant to grow up in the conditions that I did. So rather than understanding my mom's migration from the Philippines as purely a factual incident, they asked me questions like, well, why did your mom migrate in the first place? And I would answer, oh, you know, to to have a better life. And they would ask, why did she have to leave her homeland in order to have a better life? And those types of questions really started to get me thinking about colonization and imperialism and capitalism and eventually led me into radical community of other trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander people who wanted to organize around our own lives and also organize in solidarity with many other communities. And I feel so, so fortunate that as a young person, I was able to come into APINC and be challenged with those questions and also challenged to understand that all of the work that I do now is part of a much longer legacy and lineage of people who have uh, done this work before me, many of whom are, you know, on this call here today. Uh, And so I'm excited to talk more and explore all of this with you all. Aloha, everyone. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. It's always, you know, great to be with uh, with community and to talk story about this, that, or whatever. So, um, you know, Willie, I, I, my guess is that uh, I uh, predate your birthday. Uh, I just finished, uh, completed my 70th revolution around the sun. And so my main thing that I say to people now is I start by saying I'm old. And I'm proud of that. I feel happy about that. I feel that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very privileged to still be alive uh, at, in this time when there's such a, a dynamic uh, social context in, in, um, that we're living in, you know. So, you know, when I think about what my pathway started with, uh, I think there are a couple of things. One is I am born and raised in Hawaii. My father is Native Hawaiian. My mother is Sansei. And um, so just that combination of being um, Japanese-American and Hawaiian uh, is, a, is an interesting one. There are many of us who are a part Hawaiian, part Japanese. And um, because of the time I grew up 
in, you know, uh, my mother was disowned by her family in Hawaii because she married a Hawaiian. Um, so you could say my father married up and my mother married down. Uh, and so there, there, we grew up in that context in that generation when while Japanese Americans did marry uh, Native Hawaiians, uh, there, there was a price to pay, especially on the Japanese American side uh, from you know, these immigrant families who came to Hawaii to, um, you know, Sammy said, to have a better life, but you know, they came as plantation workers. So um, the promise of what that life was gonna be was always gonna be constrained. And the, the idea was always that you would go back home you were never you were never planning to get on a boat and travel many thousands of miles and days across the ocean to stay forever in a tropical place that you'd never been to. The idea was always to go home, and uh, as we know, most immigrants don't. So, um, so I grew up in a time when um, there was a lot of discrimination against both my mother. For marrying my father, and 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 because of colonization, a lot of discrimination that still exists in more subtle ways against Native Hawaiian as indigenous peoples of uh, of that land. So one of the things I think I got from my mother actually uh, was uh, two things. My mother was a nurse, so I was that family member that like took care of all the birds that fell out of the nest. Band, you know, put band-aids on my brother's knees and their my, and their friends when they fell off their bikes. And so I had this this role, and this was kind of a, a part of me, which was to always look for people. I think you know with Sammy too that when people were hurt or harmed, um, that I felt like I had to do something. And my mother was one of those people who always, always would. This was very not. Japanese American of her, but she always confronted people who discriminated against us as children of a Hawaiian father and would always say to us, don't let people discriminate against you. Like, uh, you know, you, you guys shouldn't be in the, that pool because uh, you're not white or, um, you know, calling us names, uh, you're dirty Hawaiian. And so my mother always like literally, she would like drive over to somebody's house and say, did you say these things to my, my children? I was like, Mom, please don't do that, okay? And she would always confront people who, who treated us um, with, um, uh, uh, with discrimination and prejudice. So I think I grew up with both that uh, you watch for things that are not right. You care for others who have less or who are hurting, hurting or harmed, whether it's a little bird or the land or uh, your relatives. And um, I just kind of just, Grew, grew up kind of like that. And so in my younger uh, years, I always like would, you know, jump onto different kinds of causes. When I was like in elementary school, I campaigned for uh, for political, uh, political um, uh, candidates running for office. Um, and I just was always involved in, 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 in um, I would say advocacy kinds of causes. And then when I went to college, I uh, came out as a lesbian. And so that combination of growing up under uh, a, a, a colonized state um, and really dealing with racism and then realizing that uh, I always said to people that I thought I would, I would never be in a relationship because I thought I didn't even know what love meant because if you didn't love a man, then something you were never going to love anybody. And when I realized the first person I ever fell in love with was my first girlfriend, I was like, I felt 
alive for the first time in my life. And then I realized how constrained I had been all those years growing up because I felt there was something really wrong and, and wrong with me. I didn't even think I was sick. I just thought something was wrong because I didn't know what love really meant. And um, so that was a second liberation, I think, period of my life. Um, still very, very involved in social justice causes, um, campaigned for Shirley Chisholm for president, um, uh, did a lot of marches, was arrested in anti-war, um, uh, anti-war and anti-nuke um, um, protests. And then, um, and then came into AIDS work. And I think that's when this kind of confluence of various identities became clear to me that, um, that this, this was almost like coming home in terms of AIDS work. And I was, I was living in New York at, at the beginning of the uh, AIDS, I would say, crisis at that time. And it was the first time that I worked with so many gay men, so many trans men and women, and all of us, you know, in the fight for all of our lives. Um, and it was a dynamic, a sad, um, hard time, but it was so filled with passion and love for each other and for our, for our communities. Um, and so uh, that kind of led me into social justice work much broadly. But the last thing I'll say is that I've been involved in, in uh, anti-gender uh, violence work for 50 years now, built some of the, uh, the first shelter in the United States, Better Women's Shelter, I, I was part of building in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so I was at the beginning of the, the anti-violence movement in the United States. And so things have come a long, long way. And my work now is to turn around some of the unintended consequences of our movement work, which is the buildup of the carceral prison industrial complex. Uh, it really started with many of us, starting with, uh, I think, maybe naive intentions about what the state could do for us and realizing that the state would always work against us, primarily as people of color, as BIPOC people, queer people. And so my work now is on anti-carceral um, alternatives to justice. So. Lots to tell. Thanks. Wow. So incredible hearing you three. And now we get to hear from James. James, your why? How did you get into the work that you were doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me today. It's very nice to meet um, uh, the others on the panel. It's very exciting to hear your stories. Um, I think, you know, what really drives me is my family. When I was uh, five years old, my father took a bad fall down the stairs and suffered a traumatic spinal cord injury, uh, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. And my mother had to take on two jobs in order to make ends meet. And from that experience growing up, it really inspired me to uh, study biology, regenerative biology, uh, to learn how uh, individuals can heal, especially with chronic uh, injuries such as spinal cord injuries, and also to study government to see how our government can work for all of us not just the very few at the top, uh, which it always has been historically, um, so that families such as my own and, and many others across the country can can have a government that works for them. Um, and so, you know, I, that's what I did. I majored in regenerative biology and I minored in government, and that was kind of cut short with the COVID pandemic. I was uh, in the middle of my junior year at Harvard University when we were all evacuated off campus and I returned home to uh, my hometown of South San Francisco, um, where, you know, classes were upended and extracurriculars were upended. And the case was the same for many of my friends I had graduated in high school. Um, and then we started going to city council meetings and school board meetings to see how we could be more involved in our community. Um, 
with with classes um, pretty much uh, on pause for that semester. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And then us as young people reflected back on our own community of South San Francisco and saw that we were no different. In 2012, a young 15-year-old Black child named Derek Gaines was brutally killed by a South San Francisco Police Department officer, and there had largely been no accountability and no justice towards that case. And this is really personal to many of us because Derek Gaines was only three years older than I was when he was killed. And many of my friends either knew him personally, they had taken classes with him, they had older siblings that knew him personally. And so we took it upon ourselves to, to you know, in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, go to our city council and demand changes uh, so that tragic occurrences like this would not happen ever again. And then what happened is last year's mayor, the former mayor, uh, in the transition from uh, in-person public meetings to virtual public meetings, restricted all live virtual public comment. Uh, and this was, you know, if you look at cities all across the United States, you, see, you saw like Zoom meetings, people were able to like raise their hands and give public comment and have their voices heard, but not in South San Francisco. And so what he promised was that, you know, if we send in our emails, he would promise to read them out loud during a virtual public comment uh, time, except that never happened. And so effectively you had over 150 public comments silenced by last year's city council. Many of those young people, uh, people of color, getting involved in local politics for the first time in their lives. And when I saw that injustice, I thought that, you know, if our elected leaders were not going to listen to us, then it's time for us to hold them accountable. And I decided to run for office uh, for city council uh, in my hometown. And through a grassroots campaign, uh, we were able to unseat uh, the incumbent, who was also the, the mayor last year, uh, who, who had that restrictive public comment policy and really bring about uh, change in our community, in my hometown of South San Francisco. And through that, I was able to become the first openly queer identifying uh, council member, as well as the youngest ever elected at the age of 21. Um, and, you know, what really started as a campaign for police accountability uh, and, and for Black Lives really expanded towards the many issues that our communities face as well, right? Uh, housing justice, environmental justice, economic justice, so that our government can represent everyone, especially those who, who need the help most. Um, and, and now on the council, I'm trying my best to, to um, bring that vision forward of, of a better future that I think we all know is, is very possible. Just incredible. <laughs> the amount of greatness that's in this Zoom room right now. You know, one of the things that was super exciting about this panel was that we uh, intended to have an intergenerational conversation. And so this is an open question and let, I hope that you'll all partake in the conversation around this, but the importance of, you know, looking back, right? The importance of history and what worked. And it's obvious that, you know, even today's organizers, as young as they may be, have picked up on, you know, things that were great that we've been doing as a community. But also we have folks like Dr. Kanua and Lily who continue to do the work and are constantly also learning from people like James and Sammy. And so who'd like to start with us in talking about, you know, yeah, celebrating um, all the work that we have done, looking back and honoring those who came before us and then continuing to do the work. 
Well, I'd, I'd like to start if I, if I could. Um, you know, I, I was an ex, expat living in New York City and then in um, Minneapolis uh, before I went home to Hawaii uh, a, a little over 25 years ago. So I had been away from my uh, from my home for about half of my life, and then I went home, and I was there for the second half of my life. And one of the things that happened when I went home was um, at a different stage in my life and a different um, um, point of really embracing things that I had lost in terms of my Hawaiian culture. There are a couple of things I think that are, have that now guide me in a different way, and I think it it has to do with uh, you know where I am in my own age and, and station. But there's there's two things I think that are really important. Um, one, in terms, and this is really in terms of Hawaiian culture, that now the way I live my life is I always think in three dimensions simultaneously: the past, the present, and the future. And so everything I do is to honor all of my ancestors, known and unknown to me, who came before me. It's to honor all of my friends and comrades, including all of you who are here together working for justice every single day. And really what's most important, though, is that we leave the world a better place for all the generations to come. And so, you know, it kind of helps me at least to remember that I'm not so important except for what I'm doing for all the future generations that are to come after me. And so I, I feel like my purpose now is really not about me. It's about the place that I'm in, which is to leave the world in a safer, cleaner, um, um, more just place than I grew up in, than we are living in now. It'll be a world that I will not know, but I know that my, um, my descendants will know. And that's how I live my life is thinking about that. And then the second thing is to always remember that everything um, that we do as we look to the future is based on everything that we've learned um, before us, right? And so actually, you know, the Hawaiian word for um, the future is the same word as for the past. And, um, and, you know, in terms of navigation in, in uh, Hawaiian culture, navigation, um, you, you always have to look back to see how you're going forward. And so this is, I think, a perfect question, you know, Michelle, which is all that we do is based on what we have seen in the past. So we always look back so that we know how to move forward. And I'm so, um, so thrilled. I almost kind of want to cry, James, about, about your journey, which is, I just feel so happy that that you were so brave to to take on this leadership role, um, because I feel much happier thinking about what's what's going to be ahead than where I am. And so I'm really happy to meet you, James. Thank you. And I think you know it's the the ability for young queer Asian uh, folks to run for office and be viable and to win, and honestly, just to live. Um, not in fear of, of violence is because we stand on the shoulders of so many before us who did pave the way uh, for us to be able to to thrive um, in our current communities. Lily, Sammy, anything to add? Well, I mean, you know, I really look to the young people who are leading the way, um, you know, so very much so, Sammy, James, I mean, you all are really um, making it happen now. And I think like, you know, when I look back at the past, I think, um, you know, one of the, the things that came to mind as I was thinking about the past in terms of moments in history 
Um, you know, in San Francisco, we got discrimination protections in 1995, the city and county of San Francisco. So we were, um, you know, only a handful of jurisdictions in the U.S. had prior to that. And that came from years of activism and work. And then in 1996, we launched the first large scale study of the transgender community anywhere in the world. And this was, um, you know, really a, a very the first time there was a participatory action research project on the community as usually researchers would come in and they would do their agenda. And they didn't think that, you know, transgender people had the capacity to define our experience or to um, be participant anyway in research, we were very much infantilized. And so this was um, a moment in which the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the transgender community partnered to really do everything from conceptualize, design, and design a study and implement, you know, do the data collection, analysis, and dissemination of the results. And the outcome was very, very positive. And, and you know, people went from, you know, um, working the streets to um, going into health education jobs after in that process. And we got good data, we got funding, we got more training for providers, and we were able to change the you know, the public health landscape in terms of um, the ways in which transgender people were characterized in data collection and even developing behavioral risk assessments specific to trans people. Um, and that process was just an amazing process that brought together all kinds of folks from the community to really identify what our issues were, identify who trans people were, and identify and design this research project, which had uh, over 500 participants, the most lar the largest scale quantitative research study trans folks anywhere in the world, as well as um, 100 participants in a qualitative research project as well that was prior uh, formative research. There was interviews, focus groups, um, ethnographic mapping, and so forth. And so that experience was so, so powerful and so transformative. And then years later, Sammy, y'all did the same, you know, you did work around creating a participatory action research project, specifically in the API trans community. And of course, it was a given that, you know, folks in the community would design it, that it would be completely trans-centered. But when, you know, when we did 1996, 97, I mean, it was really like um, a huge thing that the San Francisco Department of Public Health really understood that because there were community advisory boards and other research projects, but they weren't participatory action research projects. It usually, you know, like when you look, when I was in public health school in the 90s, you know, the literature on community organizing was always like, you know, you, you're, you're this privileged person who's going to look, you know, identify an indigenous community member and hire them to uh, do your agenda. Right. And so really, this was a, a moment in history where we really changed what that landscape looked like in San Francisco. And I think it had a great outcome throughout the landscape of San Francisco because we got discrimination protections. And then we really started advocating for public health. I mean, at that time, trans people were in research projects listed as um uh, gay men or and trans feminine folks were listed as gay men or as uh, cis females, which often would skew the risk picture for cis women. Um, and trans masculine folks were not recognized or documented in any way. So um, it was pretty transformative in that this study also was the first time that trans masculine folks were included in any research project. Um, so that that was, or, you know, and, and certainly on a large scale level, I, I mean, I don't know about any research, but it was, it was one of very, you know, it was, it was groundbreaking in that way. Um, so that was really um, a powerful moment. And, and it's just kind of so amazing, um, you know, when you think about like, you know, of course, years later, you know, in more recent years, when you did that work, Sammy, you know, it was a given that we would do this um, as, you know, that people in indigenous the community would do that work. Um, I, I documented this. So I did want to share this book called Transgender Rights 
uh, which came out in 2006 and was a Lamy finalist. And the piece that I wrote is called Public Health Gains with the Transgender Community in San Francisco, uh, Grassroots Organizing and Community-Based Research. So you can learn about that here because it also contextualizes what was going on in San Francisco at that time. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll, I'll move on to the, the next question. You know, you all uh, are great examples of successful cross-community solidarity organizing and movement building. And I think, you know, a lot of times when we talk about these uh, our issues in a singular way, lots of people don't really tend to define it as AAPI or LGBTQIA+, when the reality is that it affects a whole lot of us, right? So, for example, racial inequality, um, Dr. Kanua talking about, you know, the carceral system and how that affects all of our communities. Could you share with us you know, one or two points in um, this successful or the success of, of what you do and what it means to you in terms of reaching out to some, somebody else or some other community member and how that could all, you know, affect the work that we do as queer trans AAPI community leaders. I'll start with Sammy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. This is such a complex question. Uh, and a few things come to mind. Honestly, the first one relating back to what you just asked, Michelle, I think we have to look at our history, you know, because there are, there are plenty of moments throughout time in which people have had to come together. They have had to, to unite in order to fight strategically. Um, I even think about the creation of the term Asian American it was a unifying purpose. Yuji Ichioka and Emma G, you know, came together with other student activists of the 60s and the 70s to say, We're, we refuse to be called Orientals anymore. We actually, despite our differences in our different ethnic groups, have to unite with one another because white supremacy so prevalent in America is not differentiating between us. So we have to fight through this greater unity. And I think that there, there are plenty of moments throughout history, whether it's that, whether it's looking at freedom fighters like Gracie Boggs or Yuri Kochiyama that have united with Black communities, with incarcerated people, with folks from different countries, with, with people who are in a whole array of, of backgrounds and situations to understand that um, when we are vocal together, we have more capacity to change. And uh, what I always want to work towards in my work is a level of solidarity that is not just transactional, but it is relational and interdependent. And what I mean by that is um, I have to understand that when I'm advocating for something, even if it serves me and it serves my community, I have to also analyze it in a way that ensures it is not putting other people at risk. And I think this moment is a really, really good example of that with the rise in attention given to something like anti-Asian violence, for example, there are a lot of community members who are pushing for things like carceral solutions, uh, so, so, quote unquote solutions that rely on policing, which are only putting our black and brown siblings and our very own API community members at deeper risk of incarceration and violence and deportation. And so I want a level of solidarity 
that doesn't just advance one group over any one other, but that acknowledges the different levels of, of privilege, power, and oppression that each of us holds, and that works to create something that lifts all of us up based on the relationships we have, the understanding of history, and the vision needed to create a future that has real sustainable, uh, democratically governed for the people solutions. Love that. Um, Dr. Knuet, I feel like you'd be the next best person to follow up, especially, you know, when we talk about some of these more complex issues, you know, Sammy brought it up. It gets complex in our community when we talk about carceral solutions. Yeah, I mean, it is, I don't even know how to begin answering that. That was good, Sammy. I, I'm going to just follow you, what, what you said. But, you know, I, I think for me, um, you know, my, my first thought about that is, you know, be, because I do a lot of work across different kinds of social issues, um, I'm involved in a lot of queer organizing and um, API work, Native Hawaiian, and indi- I, do, I do a lot of Indigenous work in uh, Indian country and with Indigenous issues. But, you know, because I am Hawaiian and I understand the colonial forces that are brought to bear, not only in Hawaii, but all over the, the globe, you know, sometimes people say, you know, how, I don't I don't think they mean it uh, in, a, in, a, in a derogatory way, but, you know, they said, well, how can we focus so much on Hawaiians, you know, what, what about other people? And I always say, if it's good for Hawaiians, it's good for everybody. You know, if, if, if we, if we free Hawaiians from the, the vestiges of colonialism, we will free all of us, you know, all of us will be free. And so that's how I think about it is I rather have more of us at the table. We can have share, uh, uh, we can share ideas and share foods and histories. Um, and that, that, that richness of 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 experience, which includes conflict, um, uh, uh, um, parallel um, oppressions, and horizontal hostility—all those kinds of things that happen because of colonial systems of white supremacy. I'll say white male supremacy. Um, it can only help all of us. So you know, I'm with I'm I'm with Sammy, which is um, the more the better. The more, dis- more the, the more difference, better. I mean, we, we want to engage, and the only way to engage across is across differences. It's not, it's not to be comfortable. It's not for everybody to agree. I mean, change doesn't come that way. So I always say, you know, if you really want change, you have to fight. And that means that you have to step outside. You have to transgress. You have to break the law sometimes. I mean, no change happens unless people break the law. And I think that's why many of us are in, involved now in in um, really um, doing away with some with some of the the, the structures of, of carcerality is really because we know you you kind of have to like literally break the law. We have to stop building prisons. We have to stop putting people in them, and we have to look for alternatives. And that'll only come by all of us being together because all of us are actually. Um, living in a carceral state that's called the United States of America. Um, so it's only by, by being together that we're going to change things in a substantive way. Thank you, Dr. Knua. And James, let's you know, yeah, focus on the fact that all of you are successful in building cross-community solidarity with the work that you're doing on topics and issues that are tough to talk about, such as racial injustice. 
you did a beautiful job in your opening talking about, you know, you knew that this, the, the injustice is there, whether it is a complicated or an unpopular thing to talk about in our community, you uh, stood up for the right thing. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times it's building that, that interracial solidarity um, between many groups of people. And, you know, there are some cases that folks don't know about um, with regards to police violence on the Asian American community, such as the killing of Errol Chang um, in, in Daly City uh, or Pacifica, of Christian Hall in Pennsylvania, and of Angelo Quinto, um, also in California, uh, that really sheds light on that, you know, the, the, the movement of the movement for black lives is one that centers the experience of black lives, which it should, but it will have impacts throughout all of society for every person, because everyone is at risk of violence committed by the state and injustice committed by the state. And it is incumbent on all of us to realize that an injustice anywhere could be an injustice to everyone and to fight for uh, justice and, and equal uh, protection uh, for just protection for every single person, um, uh, regardless of, of what race or identity that they might have. And once we build that solidarity, that's when we can, that's when we will start to see the foundations of our oppression start to crumble and for, uh, you know, our institutions to be, to be much more representative uh, of the people that it's supposed to, to serve. And Willie, anything to add? Well, um, when I think about, you know, why have I been motivated to organize people? I think it's um, for connection, for visibility, for healthcare access, for social policy change. And I think I don't want to discount the role of connection. And I think the work that you all do at APINC, Sammy, and, you know, so many um, community organizing, you know, projects are really about bringing people together. And I think that is critically important too, to um, reduce isolation and in trans communities, given the high uh, incidence of uh, suicide ideation and attempts, you know, this is really, really important mental health support. And, um, you know, one thing that I've had the um, privilege of experiencing is being part of organizing both the first API lesbian retreat in 1987, and then 30 years later, in 2017, the first API transmasculine retreat. And it's just so powerful to see folks come together and have conversations for hours and build friendships and family and get resources and folks, you know, coming out to themselves coming out to their family, their workplace, um, accessing um, medical transition, if that's what they wanted, you know, finding information, you know, all of that has been so um, transformative and powerful. But also, you know, in terms of social and policy change, um, uh, healthcare access, you know, is something that I've worked on and, and, you know, as, you know, part of a larger team effort in community, you know, I have to say, you know, 
um, health insurance access, you know, getting um, uh, health insurance to cover transition-related care, including surgery, is one of the biggest victories of the transgender movement. And, um, you know, we were able to um, have that timely confluence of, of um, discrimination or of uh, regulations changing in California, the Affordable Care Act starting in, in 2014, and then medical providers coming to town with that expertise. And so it was really powerful to organize communities and do um, health education around how to get your surgery covered. And so folks being able to, um, and for folks who really wanted to be able to access that, that was, that was just so transformative and powerful for folks and really elevating the mental health status for folks. And so, um, you know, that's some of the, the work that has, I have had the privilege to be a part of that um, is really exciting to see the impact on both an individual and a larger community and institutional level. What about overcoming challenges, like when it gets very, very tough? I would say, like, you know, Sammy brought it up uh, with the recent rise in anti-Asian racism and violence. It, you, you can easily get absorbed in the negativity, and especially if your voice is your identity becomes marginalized. Then you really start to feel like, well, who's, who's backing me up? Or can I really do this? Can I really make change? love to hear from all of you how you overcome, you know, some of the hardest challenges of the work that you do. And uh, it can be very simple. It can, you know, it doesn't have to be too complicated, but you are the movement builders of our time. Um, let's start with James. Yeah, I think, you know, there being, being on a city council and, and representing a, a very diverse um, constituency I've learned that it's best to always have an open mind um, to the folks who want to have their voices heard, uh, no matter you know what the disagreements may be, because it's we, we always have to give validity to people's experiences, especially their lived experiences, and to really take into account you know that diverse set of perspectives and try to find a way um, to to find a solution that that does reach people's um, needs. And sometimes that's hard because, you know, you can never please everyone. And that's just a reality that we'll have to accept that not everyone will always agree on everything. Uh, but if we really go through the process of trying to find the truth, trying to find the right solutions that serve as many people as possible um, and do it in a transparent way that, that involves as many people as possible, then I think we can reach a more equitable public policy and more equitable society um, than the one we exist in now. Because, I mean, if you look at all the inequities and, and all the disparities that exist in our communities, it's because certain communities have been unheard for so long. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's so important for us to go into those communities and, and uh, try to get their input uh, wh wherever we can get it. Well, you know, I, I would say that um, uh, for me, I think it's a, a, a little bit of my personality. I, I just think like I'm one of those people, I, I just, you know, the glass is always probably not even half full, probably three quarters full. And so I think in the in the hard moments and in the, um, you know, despairing moments, I, 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 I think it's a sense of spirituality. It's a sense of belonging. I feel like I'm, I've been called to this work. I don't think I volunteered. <laughs> I didn't sign up for it. Uh, I, I was called to it. And I think many of us who do social change work, I don't think it's, you know, I, I, I don't think it's because we've been looking for this kind of a job. 
I think we're called to it. And so um, I think that's one thing that I'll say about it. And I think the other part, you know, like a lot of people say, Clay, 50 years of dealing with rapists and batterers and uh, people who killed their partners and their children. Like, how, how can you do that every year? I mean, all these years, you know. And, you know, what I say is that um, um, that I, I understand why that is happening. I, I really do. And so part of what I think has happened for me after this long, this long period of doing gender violence work, the, the most the most heinous kind of violence that I've heard, hundreds of stories from survivors and from those who have hurt them. What, what I know is that, um, you know, we live in a very difficult world with a lot of misinformation and, um, and ahistorical uh, knowledge. And even those who, who create, uh, who, 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 who uh, are very harmful and violent to others, I, I actually go towards those. I go towards the, uh, the opposite. I go towards those places where people are thinking and behaving differently than me, because to me, that's the only way for me to understand what is going on. Why would somebody support these kinds of policies? Why would somebody choke and, and, and their partners and push them out of the car in the middle of a freeway? Um, I want to know why, what happened to that person or those people or those communities. So my hope actually comes from going towards those things that I, I think are really hard and challenging because I want to know and I want to be connected to those people to understand what's what's going on. So I think the commonality I hear with all of us is this, this sense of relational and being in relationship and being in connection and really trying to be, um, I would say, compassionate and understanding how is it that these kinds of things can happen? How is it? And I would say, I have a lot of the answers now and I feel hopeful because I feel like I always get answers. And I think that's why I keep doing it because I see change. I've seen, and I'm old enough now to actually say I've seen change and I know it's only going to continue. Sammy. I often uh, come back to uh, a mantra, I guess, that I learned from an organization called Movement Generation. And the line is that if it's not soulful, it's not strategic. And the work of social change is really hard. It's like often not cute work. It's not the glamorous, like you could post a picture of this. It's, it's like spreadsheets and hard conversations and thinking about a lot of stuff together. Um, and I think that within all of that, it has always been and will continue to be a priority for me to make room for joy to make it so that the process of creating new worlds is the embodiment of the world itself. So the way we treat each other, the way we relate to one another, the way we bring in soul and culture and feeling at the forefront, to me, makes it more sustainable, even when it's not always easy. Uh, and I think that holding on to the soulfulness is key to, to building organizations or campaigns or processes that actually keep us in for the long term because we know that what we're doing is more restorative than the extraction that comes from the oppression that we're fighting. And really. Well, I I I really appreciate what everyone is saying and um 
I, it's a little hard, I think, to talk about this, you know, what's challenging, because when I think about what's challenging, particularly in working with queer and trans API communities, um, you know, I personally experienced so much love and sweetness and community, but I've also experienced um, a fair amount of harm, particularly around transphobia. And that's been challenging. And I, um, you know, and I know many people have experienced different harms over the years, you know, and I've loved different types of harms. I mean, I've loved and appreciated many people along the last 40 years or so that, you know, I've seen come and go. And I think things happen sometimes and people disappear and they don't want to come back. Um, and, you know, how do we recover from these moments? Um, you know, um, you know, I mean, there's been experiences, you know, in, in queer API communities where people have um, told us who we are, what our experience is, what our experience isn't, rewritten our history, ignored and disregarded trans experience or misgendered folks. And I think it's hard really to, you know, even understand that experience of misgendering, being misgendered, if that's not your issue, because there's nothing that's quite comparable to that. But it is a way in which, you know, trans people feel invisibilized and disregarded. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, um, it's, it's, it's a level of psychic harm that may be difficult to understand. But if you think about your most vulnerable issue and that people have made assumptions about or maybe, um, you know, giving you a hard time about, uh, disparage you for, you know, how did that feel the first time, the 10th time? the hundredth time, the thousandth time. And, you know, in those kinds of moments, you know, like how do we recover from that? Because mistakes are part of life, you know. I think, you know, what I do as a trainer is I teach people about how to apologize appropriately because I think the bottom line is, you know, we all make mistakes. We all, we need to recover gracefully. How do we make a short, sweet apology that's not requiring the other person to take care of, you, you know, you? You know, how do we acknowledge and repair the harm, you know, and how can we build that, uh, competency in our communities, you know, how can we um, help folks recover from that feeling of harm? How can we care for each other and um, and continue to build that strength? Um, you know, because there's so much good that we get from these communities and how do we avoid, you know, having those harms, um, you know, um, you know, tear the communities apart, you know, how can we continue to have those conversations? And I think um, it's a beautiful to see, thing to see the work that folks are doing in APINC and other organizations to really try to have those conversations and really try to build on the understanding that we need to work on this and, you know, how can we move forward on it? And I think it's, you know, continuing to try. And I, I keep coming back. I keep coming back to the community um, and I keep trying. I keep trying on this. And I think that is the solution, I guess. But sometimes it's about stepping away sometimes to take care of ourselves. So, um, you know, I don't have all the answers on that. It's something I've seen for so many years. I don't really know what the solution is. But I think the more that we can take care of, of acknowledging these um, things as they occur and really trying to care for our community members and our community as a whole, um, you know, we can continue to do this work because there is so much so much goodness. There is so much beauty in the work that we do and in the in the community that we have. Well, we know that we are very lucky that, you know, some of you feel that you, you've been called to this work or that you keep coming back and that you keep continuing on doing great things for our community. I can't believe we've already spent almost an hour uh, having this discussion. And to be honest with you, I can go on and on and on to listen to your stories. Uh, one of my last questions is really on, um, you know, 2022 and beyond. We're ending the last year and a half 
focused on the pandemic and it has changed so many of our lives. And, you know, I guess in a lot of ways we could say that we also are recovering or we hope to be recovering in 2022. Could you leave us with a couple thoughts or, or, you know, a couple issues, a couple things to keep in mind as queer trans API folks and community members, um, as far as like issues, like what's, what to pay attention to or what topics or issues are um, important to you if we are all members that want to support the work that you do. So we'll start with Dr. Kanua. Well, you know, I feel like the, the, the most important moment that we're in is finally, finally to deal with uh, white male supremacy. Um, I mean, now, if you don't talk about white, uh, white privilege and uh, you don't talk about white supremacy, like, you know, Google is talking about that and Amazon, right? And all the corporations are talking about that. And so are um, elementary schools. So this is the moment. And I feel like we have to address this issue of racism. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we're doing a hierarchy of what's more or less important, but we must seize this moment now. And this is it. And you can't talk about white male supremacy without also talking about uh, the genocide of indigenous people, without talking about um, disability justice, without talking about clean air and water and access to healthcare. So all of these things, all of these systems are implicated in racism. But uh, now we can put racism right out front and we can call it for what it is and then look at all the other ways that racism um, constrains the other way, the, the other justices that we all deserve to have. And so that's my, that's the thing I look forward to is actually we can now say these things and not feel like, you know, you're some oddity. So I'm, I feel really hopeful about that. I'm hopeful about addressing racism, finally. <laughs> Willie. Well, yeah, I second that emotion. Thank you so much. And also, you know, I just really, it's, you know, it's, it's all about intersections, right? I think the world is starting to recognize these intersections. They're like, yes, we need to deal with racism. Yes, we need to deal with misogyny. And yes, we need to deal with LGBTQ issues. We need to deal with um, trans issues. We need to deal with, um, you know, how we can create affirming settings throughout society in our educational settings, in community health settings, in the business settings, right? And everywhere throughout society, you know, how can we really, we really create affirming settings? So, um, you know, absolutely, I second that emotion. And, you know, I'll, I know how I defer to others on the panel to continue that conversation. James. Yeah, I think, you know, be bold. Uh, don't be shy and really demand a change that you want to see in your community um, because, you know, a lot of the folks that is, it's very representative in our, our leadership that it's, it fosters a type of old boys club, right? You have to be old, you have to be white, you have to be male and straight um, to have these positions of power. And they usually have the confidence to run for these positions. And I've noticed that there's a, a sort of timidness among, you know, young queer people of color to run for office or to apply for the, you know, these positions of power. But I mean, it, it really isn't come upon our community to, to run for these positions, to, to demand the change we want to see. Um, and if we don't see that change from our elected leadership that, that we are asking for, go ahead and run yourself because, you know, it's, you know, I may 
be the first or there might be others who are the first, but we always have one arm forward, you know, climbing that mountain and one arm back, pulling others with us. And there are many folks um, up and down, uh, you know, the state of California. And I think, you know, in, in the broader context of the United States who are uh, really looking for um, new leadership and new faces that are representative of the communities and not just those who have historically held uh, power in those positions. Last but not least, but before you answer, Sammy, I, I do want to acknowledge that uh, earlier in the beginning of the program, I had said that you were the outgoing executive director of APINC. Really, at multiple times of the conversation, I brought up the importance of your leadership. And so I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you so much for your leadership in leading, you know, yeah, the next generation of people who are truly focused on making this a better place for all of us. And I just think that you embody you know, what Dr. Kanua had talked about in terms of movement building from way before you know, any of us had entered the picture and, and you're moving that all forward. And so we wish you good energy for what's to come and we can't wait to see what that looks like. And so, Sammy, do us the honors of <laughs> leaving us with some thoughts for 2022 and beyond. Wow, Michelle, thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know, I came into APINC when I was 17 years old. And when I when I came into the organization, I was so fearful of being all of who I was because I became so accustomed to people refusing to see me. And one of the greatest gifts that APINC has given me is that it has challenged me to be all of who I am at all times, no matter what, uh, even if I'm not always ready for that. And it's challenged me to understand that without my connections to others, without my connection to my history, without my connection to values of abundance, the work that I'm doing um, will never be fully transformative. And so the thing that I want to leave people with, you know, in addition to the to the ever pressing issues of community safety for our people, to the pressing issues of healing justice and mental health care, to the to the pressing issues of having our people feel empowered as trans leaders who have been told for years and years that we simply do not exist. I want people to spend the time interrogating their own values and how they can move closer to abundance and further from something like scarcity, because we have enough as people. We have enough brilliance, we have enough time, we have enough resources, and it is about time that we claim that for ourselves and reclaim all of once what once was, because what has been forgotten can be returned to us. And it is the time right now to dig deep into that and allow ourselves, our souls, our ancestors, and our future generations to be emboldened in the power needed to move forward. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And some great words for uh, the ending of our program. That's what we're leaving you with. Thank you all of you for joining us for this great program. It's our final installment of Hearts and Minds. I want to thank Gotha Theater for putting this together and bringing us all together. And also, Thanks to the partners who made this happen, the Commonwealth Club of California, the connection at the San Francisco Community Health Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Thank you all again. And uh, oh, wait, sorry. Thank you to our speakers, James Coleman, Dr. Valley Kahe Kanua, 
Sammy Ablaza Wills and Willie Wilkinson. Please follow them and their work, support them, support each other, support our community members. We'll see you next time for the full updates on all programs at the Commonwealth Club. Head to commonwealthclub.org. 